0: Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small, a podcast about brand development, entrepreneurship, and innovation in the modern world. In this episode, I'm joined by Deborah and Nicole of Sorbabes, vegan and gluten-free, plant-based sorbet bars. I must say, I'm typically an ice cream guy, but after trying Babes, they're bars that are dipped and coated so perfectly, nothing compares. I highly recommend, and I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small. Today, I'm joined by Nicole and Deborah of Babes. Guys, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Yes, thanks for having us. Of
0: course. Great to be
2: here.
0: <laughs> yeah. So we typically like to start out with your upbringing. Uh, there's two of you guys. So if you could uh, decide who goes first, but talk about what your childhood was like and where did you guys grow up?
2: Should I start? Okay. Um, so this is Deborah Gorman, uh, co-founder of Sorbaves. I started, actually, I grew up in New York City, um, mm-hmm. so I you know, I had a very um, metropolitan, you know, like early, early existence. And I was also surrounded by food in a very positive way. Like my grandmother taught me to cook and I learned a lot about just like, like really, she was, she was immigrant, you know, she had Mm. like really delicious recipes that were a lot more flavorful and more interesting than a lot of the stuff that was we were other people were eating. Um, and so I learned a lot about just like really good food and what it meant to really use great ingredients and how important sort of this tradition of cooking is in our family. Mm-hmm. Um, so I grew up cooking a lot. Like I just would come home from school instead of playing video games. I'd be like testing things in my kitchen and like trying to make different new recipes. So that's mm. sort of where I learned how to cook basically yeah. by myself growing up, which is really fun. Um, and yeah. And then I don't know, that was the early upbringing, I guess,
0: is how food was very important in my life. Amazing. Amazing.
1: Yeah. So for me, uh, it was a quite different story. I was actually born and raised in Alaska. Wow. um, And uh, yeah, I feel like that made me always feel disconnected from the rest of the world. I was always hyper aware that I was from this weird, excluded place where the lower 48 was all the cool things were happening there, and um, I was always wanting to find that next level and get you know to the lower 48 and work on something big like I just had these huge dreams and I like to say I had delusions of grandeur so my my big dream was I was going to go to New York City when I graduated um, high school to go to college and then go work on Wall Street and live in a penthouse and make millions and millions of dollars and that was my you know dream. Yeah. So um, I got part of that. <laughs> so after I graduated high school in Alaska, I moved to New York City and I spent uh, you know my years there in college and afterwards I got a job in investment banking. So I mm. made it to Wall Street and wasn't as fun and glamorous as I expected. You know, I was yeah. working ridiculous 15, 16 hour days. Um, people would brag about how they would sleep at the office. And, uh, you know, it was just a really really tough grind mm-hmm. and I mean you're paid okay but I don't know if it's worth the sacrifice and after yeah. a while I started to question whether it was the reality that I wanted or this dream and I was starting to see that I had this type A personality I was go 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 all the time and I was really really driven um, and I think that at some point it was very clear to me that I was not in the right profession so um, when the market crashed in '08. Uh, the fallout of Wall Street began. It took a couple years, and before I knew it, I was also laid off with thousands and thousands of other people in new york city Mm. and it's actually interesting if you look at the artisanal food movement in brooklyn it started in 2012 which is when sore babes was formed and so i think a lot of people were probably very dissatisfied in their jobs and decided to go start something yeah um and and i had always had an entrepreneurial bug even when i was working i think i was always scheming up what would be the thing like what would be the next business what's the side hustle you know and nothing ever was significant enough but with the sore babes idea um you know, it really just, it, it, you sort of knew it from the moment we started that it was the right thing.
0: So. Mm, amazing. That, that's so fascinating. I and mean, I, I presume you both met in New York and then Deborah, I w- I'd like to go into, cause I, I know you became a chef and I know this probably leans into Sorbabe's creation. So what, what, where did the aspiration come from? Did you study culinary? Where did you go? And then how did you both meet in this intersection as well?
2: Yeah. So I st- actually did not study the culinary arts in school. Like I had I was kind of a book smart kid too. So like I did well in high school and then I went to college and like, but I always had a creative like bend in me. Cause I just like, didn't, I just saw myself going into a creative field. Like I didn't know exactly what it was. So I studied visual communications in school and, and psychology and a little bit of marketing. So that was like kind of where I ended up with like a business sided artistic combination like how do I combine like my business mindset and my also my creative side so that's sort of where I ended up and I started working in advertising um I was a graphic designer I was a production I produced commercials like I did a lot of stuff in my early 20s kind of just trying everything out and never finding something I liked like I always felt really like my soul was saying kind of similar to Nicole like I just like this is not what I want to do like and Mm. I so finally I just Decided I wanted to work in restaurants, and I actually like knocked on the door at Blue Hill at Stone Barns, which with Dan Barber, and he was the chef. And I just really loved the farm-to-table, you know, for timetable-like mindset of just like really knowing where your ingredients because everything was grown on the farm there. And so Mm. I went up to the farm and I was like, "Can I just work for free and stage?" And like, I was like thinking of going to culinary school, but I didn't know for sure if that was what I wanted to do. And I always feel like working in the industry is like always a better way to start than like. Spending that million, you know, could be thousands and thousand dollars on culinary school. So I For went sure. and I worked there, and I just was so happy. Like, it was so stressful and crazy because these kitchens are like they're nuts. But I just mm. was like, I love this. I love working with food. I love like getting my hands in things and like mm. making stuff instead of sitting in front of a computer all day. And so I um, started working, and they gave me a job like three weeks later. They're like, okay, like you're good at this. Like here, <laughs> like just like put you on the line and like go. And I was like. Okay, and so that's what yeah. I kind of learned on the job, which was a little scary, but but, but kind of just how Nicole and I roll. For <laughs> sure. So it makes, we just kind of like try, we just do it until, you know, and figure it out as we go. So sure. um, so yeah, so that's how it started. And then we met actually at some point in my culinary career, I worked in a bunch of different restaurants in New York City, really awesome fine dining establishments, learned a lot throughout the years Did some pastry, like worked in the pastry side, worked on savory, worked on the line. Mm. Um, Kind of worked my way around different kitchens to learn as much as i could and at one point i realized like i'm not going to be a chef forever like this same it's like it is a really hard lifestyle and i was missing major events in my life and i kind of knew i wanted to i had the entrepreneurial spirit in me so yeah. when i started actually private chefing one summer because i was like this is a fun gig i'll go live in the hamptons and private chef for this family and while i was there i i the family I worked for was amazing like i still to this day just like wonderful people they were like i I could have had so much fun. And then my boss was kind of like, he saw in me, he, he was a businessman. So he was like, you should start something. And we kept talking about ideas and different things. And I was always worked. I kind of worked for myself at that point. It was like doing catering. And, yeah. and then I get a call from my a woman who I worked with. So I used to live in, in the house and Nicole's mother in law was the other person who lived in the house. So she was a house manager. She would manage their house in the Hamptons. And so the two of us spent the whole summers together. We got very close. She knew me very well. She saw how I worked. Um, And she's like, You really, Nicole, you need to meet Deborah. Deborah, you need to meet Nicole. Like the two of you are just going to hit it off. And like you have a very similar mindset. So we were kind of match made, which was perfect. (laughs) And (laughs) we didn't know each other before we started Soar Babes. We just kind of jumped into it. And, you know, Nicole called me and was like, I have this idea. You know, and I'm like, well, I've made sorbet. I'm like, sorbets a great. Like, I, I was sold instantly when she told me about it. And I was like, I'll help you. Like, let's do it. And so yeah. within like a couple of months, we just partnered up and like, we're wow. on this crazy journey.
0: It's <laughs> amazing. Yeah. So, Nicole, when you pitched the idea to Deborah, how far along was Sorbabes? Were you prototyping, kind of experimenting yourself? What did it look like?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I was. So, um, I had been, like I said, playing with different ideas and inside hustles. And I had started to play around with um, making sorbet. And, you know, I, I always give this example of going to the farmer's market and getting a whole bunch of overripe peaches that are just like they wouldn't last another day at the farmer's market. And I yeah. brought them home and I made a homemade sorbet out of them and made like a cinnamon streusel and mixed it in it was like a frozen peach cobbler Mm. and sharing it with people in my building in manhattan and everyone was like oh my god this is amazing and and then wanting to have something like that on a different day and not having the time so i went to the store to find something and there was nothing like it And I was just like, why is there so many options for frozen desserts and, you know, bro-yo and coconut ice creams and artisanal ice creams, but sorbet was always the same three flavors. Every brand made it, but they just, it was like a, we joke, it's like the redheaded stepchild of the ice cream world. Like it was like, yeah, there's sorbet, but it's, you know, not- yeah. The top seller. And so I was like, why don't we just give this some love? And Deborah, when I, you know, being in the culinary world, when I told her about it, because I think true chefs understand how amazing Sorbet can actually be. Yeah. So she, of course, was like, yes, this is a great idea. And it was very interesting working or, or starting a business venture with someone that you're not friends with because they had no history with her. So in some ways, we really had to truly just jump in. And I think some of it was just naivety. We we weren't Maybe totally aware of how dangerous getting into business with somebody can be. I mean, fortunately, we, we have a great relationship now. But yeah. um, I still remember very vividly when I realized I could work with Deborah. Um, we were working in a, an ice cream kitchen together. We would make the the sorbet late at night, and it's it's really busy. Like you're constantly, constantly moving, and it's exhausting. And it's late at night. Um, we were doing this in a in, we rented out an ice cream shop in the middle of the night. In Brooklyn, So it was like this tiny little creamery and we would go in at midnight and work until five in the morning and we would work in such synchronicity. It was, it was almost like neither of us stopped. We didn't really have to talk too much about what needed to be done. It was just, we were anticipating each other's moves and we were kind of dancing in the kitchen together. Yeah. And I was like, and we got so much done and we were exhausted and like to the point of tears sometimes, but we still both showed up. We still both did it. And we mm. were like, okay, I think we both saw in each other this really strong tenacity that is necessary to go into business. And so I think at that point I was like, I know she's a hard worker and I know she's smart. I can trust her. And, you know, we sort of jumped in.
0: Amazing. I'm curious in those early days, um, kind of how many flavors were you looking to go with? Um, what did that like first launch look like for you guys, especially not having business ventures by your, yourselves at that point? So how many flavors did you launch with? What was the size, et cetera?
2: We actually, so we started at farmer's markets um, and we were, so we weren't selling packaged ice cream yet. It was in bulk, you know, so we made these. So basically it was a great test environment. So we would come up with these flavors and we had some awesome, we just, I would just basically go to the farmer's market and see whatever was in season, purchase it, like make, come up with a flavor based on what I found at the market. And it was fun. Like we had like yellow watermelon and basil and like cucumber white wine mint and like these really like, fun flavors that actually sold incredibly well and we also came up with these like nut butter flavors so some of our flavors had instead of just fruit we also started using nuts and then they weren't nut butters at that time it was like basically we created this awesome way to make these nut butters nut sorbets that had like the creaminess of ice cream but were dairy free and you really tasted all the flavors of the different nuts and so that was so fun to like just try these out and we kind of we got like the one of my favorite moments is when like Yelp, we were driving across like the bridge, I think from going from Queens to Manhattan. um, And we just finished our day working. We were exhausted. We sold all, you know, sold out of all of our sorbet. Mm -hmm. And um, we get a call from Yelp and they're like, you know, you have a Yelp page, but like you don't, you haven't set it up. Like you have like all these reviews, like people. And we started like reading these reviews and both of us, I think started crying because we were just like, Oh, people like are getting it. Like they really understand what we're doing and it's unique and they see it. And so we were like, all right, at that moment we're like, okay, let's let's keep going. Like we are onto something. We're not gonna stop. Yeah. And so that was the first summer. And so after we kind of tested out these recipes and had a bunch of different, like great market research from the farmers market, um, we found a manufacturer, like a very small manufacturer who can make our pints. And so we launched with about four or five flavors. I think I'm trying to remember what our launch flavors were. I yeah. mean, it was a strawberry, it was a strawberry barb crumble. We had, we had the cucumber might mine mint, which was a good learning experience mm-hmm. because that one sold incredibly well at the market. Like we would also have um, Hamptons Farmer's Markets and at the Hamptons yeah. Farmer's Market, like we could sell people like five of those at a time for $12 a pint. At that time that was like crazy expensive. And yeah. people were just buying it and they loved it. And they were like, this is the best flavor. And you put it on the shelf in the supermarket and nobody bought it like it just sat there because mm. people couldn't understand like why is there like the cucumber if they didn't taste it and have that like sampling of it or kind of be at yeah. the farmer's market experience where they're open to it they didn't buy it so then we mm. shifted a little bit on our mindset of what we put on the shelf and how we launch the products in in a way where they're innovative and interesting but also comfortable and approachable so people aren't sort of they will like look at them and say, oh, I like those two flavors. I'm going to try that together yeah. versus being like cucumber in my sorbet. Like, I don't know. You know, so it's, yeah. it was an interesting, really interesting learning experience early on the mm. farmer's market and then launching in our first stores um, sure. in New York City. Mostly New York City and the Hamptons, where we were selling.
0: I hope you guys are enjoying this episode so far. I'd like to pause and say thank you to this episode's mid-break sponsor, The Thai Bar. As you guys know, the show relocated to Los Angeles. And as I'm working in the studio and then in the office, first impressions are really important. The Tie Bar offers a wide variety of men's clothing from ties, shirts, dress pants, and more at a very affordable price point. And I can truly say I highly recommend this brand. I've ordered so many dress shirts in the past and nothing feels as great as these shirts do at the same price point. So make sure to check them out for yourself at thetiebar.com. That's thetiebar.com, And enjoy the rest of the episode. Well, at launch and especially as well leading into today, I'm curious, what are your marketing strategies? What What do you find that works, especially I know in the tasting at the farmer's market, but when you move into stores and retail, you can't really give your consumer that. So what do you find that works best for you, especially as a consumer frozen product?
1: That's a really good question. I think if there was a perfect answer, we'd all be <laughs> like yeah. multi-millionaires. You know, I, I find that Well, what we found is the most important thing truly is that you get your flavors right. So like to Deborah's point, understanding that when someone's at the grocery store, the way that they look at flavors and and options is is probably a lot more traditional than they would if they had an opportunity to taste. So even if you go into an ice cream, a dip shop, right, you'll Mm -hmm. taste some of the funky flavors, but you'll walk out with your traditional cookies and cream or whatever. That's just kind of how people are. So, you know, I think really understanding what the consumer is looking for and the higher volume flavors is going to be really key but then also your packaging Mm. i think that is your first point of contact i think everyone thinks about like marketing and social and this and that but at the end of the day so your packaging has to jump off the shelf and people have to be attracted to it and want to, to try it so we went through a lot of packaging iterations, and you know, tried to save money in the beginning by doing it in-house and working with like smaller, you know, unknown designers, and and not understanding packaging design. I think is one of our biggest mistakes in the beginning. Mm. Um, words were too small. The flavor cues weren't large enough. Like, you know, what's the hierarchy of the communication on the package? Like, what is the brand the most important thing, or is the flavor name? So we have refined all of those decisions now, which I think really, really helps with our packaging. And when we go into into new stores, the first line of defense is your packaging, right? That is all. Yeah. So that, that's kind of the way we approach it. And then after that, then of course you layer on brand awareness with tactics on social and geo-targeted, you know, ads and things like that. But, um, you know, it's really, and then of course, you know, retailers want you to do all of the promotions with them as well. And so a lot of stores have trained their shoppers to shop the tags. So -hmm. it's like, you know, I mean, I live in Florida right now and everyone knows at Publix, it's all about the BOGO. So you go in and when something's on BOGO, you stock up. So I think that understanding the retailer that you're in and their culture. So Mm -hmm. some retailers are high low and some are everyday low price. And so just understanding the tactics per retailer is also very helpful.
0: For sure. So I'm curious with that. Uh, consumer research and marketing, what would you say is the main demographic? Have you depicted that and what would that be?
2: I think, That's well, cool. we've, yeah, we've, um, we think we're pretty sure. And I think this is hard because I think it, we, there is actually a pretty good range of people that purchase our product. Yeah. We think if it's more of like, it's, the demographic is more like social, so, social, 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 sociographic i think is the term i'm not sure but it's yeah. more about like a m- mindset versus an age or a um gender you know like what other ways you would break down people and and, yeah. and it's more about what they're looking for so our consumer you know is is a better for you consumer but they also don't want to um sacrifice on flavor and taste mm. and we've also found that our consumer is like you know is sensitive to, you know we're we're looking we're our, our products are clean labels so we're very careful of everything that goes into the product and what it is it's dairy-free vegan plant-based all that and it's also made it's gluten-free and so it's made with like really wholesome ingredients and then also you know we're we're all about flavor so I think that that group of people um is you know they're they're not looking for the cheapest option out there but they're also looking for a good value they're um you know they're interested in, like, we, you know, we think about like-minded brands to partner with because I think that's a really good way of thinking about our customers because that's where, you know, we have these great um, synergies with other brands that have similar um, values. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of times the female consumer, I mean, without, you know, generalizing too much because, you know, we are the sore babes and a lot of the supermarket shopping is still primarily done by women, which is still interesting today. But, you know, but of course that's changing and that's great. But I think mm-hmm. we, like, you know, we see a lot of, um, you know, we talk a lot about women in Paramount and like being a female in brands. So that's mm-hmm. part of our, our mission and just to share that mm-hmm. for sure. So, yeah, I hope that answers your question. No, totally.
0: <laughs> totally. I, uh, I'm curious then, uh, looking at sore babes today and the existing market, how would you say that sore babes is different? I know vegan, um, plant-based, what, what would you say that is differentiated, especially people who aren't familiar too much with sorbet? What's like an existing, like, sorbet formulation that might not be healthy for consumers
1: yeah so i think traditional sorbet is very Mm one-dimensional um a lot of times it's made with uh corn syrup because it get a high fructose corn syrup it gives it that really silky smooth sort of saccharine sweet uh, which a lot of people associate with sorbet which is unfortunately why i think a lot of people don't like it Mm. or think they don't like it because they think it's going to be super sweet yeah um and it can be, it can be icy. So there's, you know, a lot of that. And sometimes you'll put uh, egg white in in sorbet as a, it's like a stabilizer, as a bulker. So I think that if that was how a traditional person maybe saw sorbet, sorbet is very different. We obviously use um, really clean ingredients, but we also make sure that it's not too sweet. I think that We know, actually, when something is so sweet, you can't taste the actual flavors What you're getting is that like sugar hit, but you're not tasting like the real strawberry. Strawberry does have a little bit of tartness to it. I mean, a real strawberry is not like Mm. a sugar bomb. So, you know, trying to be true to that. But I also so one of the things that we've done when we first started, we were making our sorbet in pints and we have transitioned to novelty bars. Because one of the things that we really wanted to showcase in sorbet and sorbets in particular was layers of flavor and texture. And we felt that the bars were a much better way to to deliver that. So right now our sorbet bars have a soft sorbet center. So they're not like a hard fruity like a like a fruit palette. You think it's kind of icy. Yeah. They're not that. They're very soft in the center. They melt very nice in your mouth. But then the outside is dipped in a creamy flavorful coating. So we have all these different dips that we dip the sorbet in so it kind of gives another layer of texture and flavor and then those have crisps in them as well. So they're actually puffed quinoa, but it just tastes like puffed rice like a crackle bar. Yeah. So, you know, the flavor combinations we have, we have a mango bar dipped in a creamy coconut shell with crisps. We have a strawberry bar dipped in a strawberry cream shell with crisps. Um we have a wild berry bar, which is this really juicy wild berry flavor um, dipped in a dark chocolate shell with crisp. So it's really about like, you know, you get that sweet and a little bit of that like dark chocolate to kind of combine it all. And, and it creates, and this is where I think Deborah's culinary background really has come into play is, yeah. you know, understanding palate and understanding how when you eat things, it's like those layers of complexity, which create this really wonderful, wonderful experience. Mm. Um, and that's what I think our surveys deliver today.
0: Amazing. But we're looking at sort of today. What would you say is the top seller, the top flavor, if you have an idea?
2: Gosh, they all sell kind of similarly, which is interesting. We just, like, looked at our years, you know, how much we sold in the last year. Mm-hmm. And in different regions of the country, different bars are the top seller. You know, and yeah. it, in the beginning of this year, we thought it what like, we just, like, watched, like, how things go. And we thought it was going to be, like, they're all, like, kind of, like, in a little race. You know, you see them, like, going up on, yeah. <laughs> on the charts. Um, so... Our um, vanilla caramel was, we thought, was our top seller. And then Wildberry started, like, picking up and, like, winning the race. And then just recently, we just see mango coconut, like, really, like, making leaps and bounds. So we're like, huh. So it's, I think it's wow. just interesting. And I think mango, like, some of the, I think it's interesting what consumers are more comfortable with. So they'll mm-hmm. try, like, say, I think vanilla caramel was probably their most comfortable flavor, right? Yeah. Or, like, most, you know, known, com- you know, people eat it. So they had that one first maybe and bought a lot of that one. Then they tried, then I was like, oh, then they might've tried the next one. That was like, you know, it, it's just interesting to see. And I, the progression of how people eat, and we don't know exactly how that happens. And we yeah. don't know all the data, like all the reasons why people make decisions and how that works. But I think the mango coconut, it's actually my favorite bar. Um, and because it's just like, there's just like a nice combination of tart and sweet and it's just a nice, it's just a nice combination. It's like, and, I, and the other ones are delicious too. And I, but it's all your fa- your personal perspective. Like Cameron, yeah. what was your favorite? Did you taste them all? Or did I did.
0: Taste- They're amazing. Um, so I first tried the mango coconut and I, I thought like, this is amazing. I don't even want to try the other one. I didn't want to keep eat- I want my second bar to be this one. And then I actually tried the caramel one after that. And then I think I, I finished that box before I went back to the mango. So I actually like the caramel one best. It's yeah, so guys. good. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And that's actually an interesting interesting. one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's because that flavor is so different than the others because it is made with a nut butter. Yeah. So it provides, I think, and again, like for people, consumers who don't know our brand, when they hear sorbet, they they again expect something icy, something sugary sweet. So they don't expect this ice cream like creaminess from something that doesn't have dairy. And when we started this, it was way before the dairy free movement, way before plant-based and vegan and any of that. So you know, sorbet is truly traditionally dairy free. And we just kept with that because that's what we're making. And the vanilla caramel, I think, delivers this ice cream experience that people really yeah. enjoy. I mean, it's such a great flavor. And then Deborah created that that um, caramel chocolate, which for dairy free, typically what you see is all dark chocolate dip mm. because that's the dairy free option is dark chocolate. So Deborah was able to create a you know, sort of faux milk chocolate. So it's not truly milk, but it tastes like that with the caramel notes. And yeah, that's a really
0: great flavor. It's amazing. Well, I like to conclude each episode with this. If you guys could each share one piece of advice uh, with an aspiring entrepreneur, maybe something you've learned or regret along the way, uh, what would that be?
2: I think I have one. I was thinking about this.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. I think not to quit, to just pivot. Yeah. Because I think that there's moments in time, and we've said this before I think together, is that you're stuck to an idea and you're so sure about it, and then you can be so stuck on it that you don't realize it's not working and you need to pivot. So you don't, you don't have to think about it as quitting. You have to just like keep going, but make changes to adapt to like either a, sh- a shift in consumer needs or a new learning about your product. Um, and I think that's what starting small and being a small entrepreneur gives you the liberty to do versus the large companies that can't do that. You yeah. know, they say start, they're just on a roll and they can't like pivot so quickly. Um, so I think that, you know, you sometimes feel like you're failing or it's not working or things aren't going well, like, and you just have to step back and like assess the situation and see what's not working and why and pivot and just say, okay, I'm not gonna do it this way. I'm gonna try a different way. I'm not gonna quit. But it might feel like quitting at the time if you have to like let go of an idea that you're so so sure about. But yeah. there's usually a way, and I think it just takes time. It takes years and years and years of building mm-hmm. and learning and consumer awareness. It doesn't happen mm-hmm. overnight. It takes like you know it takes just years of people, and then also learning about your product and making it better. So I think all those mm-hmm. things to me is don't quit, just pivot.
1: For and sure, that's my, yeah. that's, my advice. that's that's great advice, Deborah. I mean, mm-hmm. and I I almost piggybacking off of that. That sort of last idea about it, it takes a lot of time. I think patience. I mean, we've been at this for 10 years now. And I can tell you that when I think about any brand that I admire, no one hits that like gold level of success before 10 years. You just, yeah. and so that's a long timeline to think about. It. And even after 10 years, you can talk to entrepreneurs that you think are so successful and every single one of them will say, I'm still just keeping my nose above water. You know, it's just like, yeah. there's always that next level that, that just keeps you going. And so I think being really, really patient and during that time, realizing that, you know, it's all about growth and, and learning. So like while you have that, that 10 years just to sort of get things going, which sounds you know insurmountable, but it's a yeah. reality. Um, to be really aware when you're hearing feedback that maybe doesn't jive with what your expectations were and not being stubborn and saying, oh, I don't believe that, you know, I'm just going to push forward it. But like really understanding when the market or when people are telling you something that you need to listen to and maybe change your thought process. So I think being open and patient are two of the most important things. Oh, and one other thing, and I have to say this because if you are not an optimistic person, I don't think you should be an entrepreneur because yes. you have to truly always believe that the next that it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay because if, if you ever doubt yourself, um, I don't know how you're going to make it through because it's tough.
0: For sure. Well, sure. Nicole and Deborah, thank you guys so much for joining me today. And to the listeners out there, make sure to check out SoreBabes Babes at SoreBabes.com. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Starting Small. If you would, Leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Also, follow Starting Small Pod on social platforms to keep up to date on future guests.